Welcome to the Future Fair Food Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm Sinead. Join us in conversations with the change makers shaping a new fairer food system. Welcome back to the Fair Food Podcast. This month, we explore a topic which is really at the core of why Future exists, building resilience through diversity. Sinead and I are fervent supporters of the idea that having a diverse farm at the heart of each community can build deep resilience at all levels, be it resilience facing climate change, but also building economically resilient rural communities, keeping people healthy through healthy food, and building communities where people support each other through all times. So let's dive into this and let yourself be inspired by the amazing farmers we interviewed. Enjoy the episode. <laughs> um well thanks for thanks for having me ladies this is exciting it's a wonderful podcast um okay so myself me is me Crawford and my husband Ellen and we have Crawford's farm um we are a bit of our background a bit of our history we are kind of reluctant farmers um we're a bit more of the homestead mentality you produce for yourself um, and any sort of surplus overflow goes to benefit your community. Um, but we never really got into the sort of conventional farming model. We were just looking at more about producing our own food. Um, and when you look at it that way and you look at it from the perspective of, number one, how can I, how can I do the least work? Um, and number two, what would nature do? Because that is ideally the least amount of work. Um, then you're looking at more complex systems and systems that are more diverse just simply by their nature. And so on our farm, we have a lot of different things that we do. Um, it's a small 28-acre farm, but uh, we're primarily, primarily involved um, in the commercial side of it in animal agriculture. So we have a small micro dairy. We have um, 11 shorthorn cows that we milk and sell raw milk um, and cream and butter and buttermilk. Uh, we have pigs who are ancillary to that. They consume a lot of the skim milk um, and the buttermilk that comes from the dairy production side of it. Uh, we raise uh, broiler chickens, about seven or 800 of those a year um, that follow behind our cows in the grazing rotation to add fertility to the land and sort of um, work on that symbiotic relationship between bird and beast that you see out in the wild. Um, and ducks as well. We raise another them as poultry and they sort of, again, are part of the grazing rotation. They go free range completely and um, they grub around and take down the parasitic load in, in the different pastures and things. Um, so those are all the products that we sort of produce to sell. Um, we also produce them for ourselves. And then for ourselves, we have laying hens, which we get eggs from, and we produce a fair bit of vegetables as well. Um, so kind of a whole a whole food whole food diet, um, both for ourselves and then for our wider community as well. Um, and what we're what we're looking at and doing that is again, not like mimicking mimicking nature. Natural systems are complex, um, and they're very holistic and cyclic. And so we don't want any dead ends. So any trying to to minimize the inputs coming in as well as um, you know we want the outputs going out as as products for sure but not nutrients necessarily. So trying to keep it as much as we can um, on the farm. Cool. I think the first thing that comes to mind is people probably think you are ridiculously busy. Because it's such a diversity, you must literally just be running around the place trying to, you know, move stuff. 
that's probably the assumption that it's that it's really labor intensive but is that really the case or um sure it, it is more hands-on um however it's i wouldn't say it's necessarily more work for us it's a life and a lifestyle as well as anything else um so we're choosing to do it and we like to do the work that comes with it um i think if we if we didn't we wouldn't do it <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth it um but it's it's all about getting your systems in place really uh, if if you can the efficiency of systems um and so the animals do a lot of their own work you don't really like we we make a lot of work i think by taking animals out of their natural habitats and out of their natural rotation um and so you make a lot less work for yourself if you can put them back into that um so while there is some work involved in, you know, moving to Kentuckis, for example, and grazing rotation or, you know, closing in ducks at night. Um, the fact that we aren't, um, you know, we aren't having to then clean out big chicken houses or you're, you're taking work from, from one spot and you're doing it somewhere else. It's just where you're choosing to do it. I, suppose I always give the example for the chickens of, of having poultry houses. I would much rather every day go spend 40 minutes moving chicken tractors and feeding chickens outside in the bright sunshine and when it happens um, and the fresh air than you know every few weeks spend mucking out a, a stationary you know chicken house and then having to spread that manure out on the land. So so it's not necessarily more time; it's just a trade-off um, and where you want to spend your time. It's a very good trade-off though, because for like on an ethical front. The fact that you're, you know, you are able to raise basically chicken for the table and you can do that with them being outdoors and being allowed to kind of, you know, scratch at the ground and pick at the grass and stuff like that. So, you know, as you said, it's not necessarily that it's more work, it's just different work. And in some ways, it's definitely more ethical, I think, for, a, you know, for a lot of people when they think of chicken and even pig production. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully better for both us i mean we're getting healthy exercise then too i both like you know help and, and mental mental exercise um healthier for the, the farmer as well as the animal and and by default then the end consumer and and hopefully the land then too exactly exactly and um what i'm interested in is like how long did it take you to find the right balance and, and how did you do it did where did you get the information did you know all yeah. that before <laughs> I think we're still finding the right balance. We're constantly <laughs> learning. I don't know that we've necessarily, you know, gotten there yet. I don't know that you ever do in farming, especially when you're farming this way. There's always something more you're learning or doing. Um, so we we scaled up pretty gradually. Um, we part of our thing as a small farm is that so not only is diversity of operations was important but if we wanted to try to make a living doing it a diversity of income streams was important mm -hmm. um, and so we scaled up very gradually we weren't interested in taking out loads of money or anything um, and so we let sort of demand drive the way we evolved um, and we we knew we wanted the operations to be complementary, and so we worked that into the system as well. And but we weren't really really ready to sacrifice that for for um, what the consumer was demanding. But luckily, what they wanted fit in to that, and so it sort of evolved very organically in that sense. 
so we we're still learning as we as we as we go um and we don't by any means have it all figured out uh <laughs> we're very young farmers like this is only really our fifth season doing what we're doing um and so we've started to find a balance um i'd say early on we didn't have a very good handle on because we didn't want to spend loads of money we didn't necessarily go out and buy all of the equipment we needed or you know that we could have had or should have had or really needed to use um but we've thankfully gotten to that place financially where we can do that <laughs> and so that makes life a lot easier and a lot balanced in that respect um but really the operations it's it's your time the time living limiting factor you can choose yourself um but then really it's just um the the consumer what the consumer wants i mean if you're going to produce for somebody else you have to try to balance that in as well how did they or what what's their main interest when they buy from you really what what do you get from them why do they buy your produce we get i, I suppose we're we're best known for the dairy part of it partly because there's very few other micro dairies yet in ireland And there's very few people selling directly their own milk, I think, and also making butter and doing those things. So a lot of people come originally for that. Um, and when they're buying the dairy specifically, they're, they're buying into the ethos of having cows and doing it seasonally and, and knowing the cows and not having them be massively high producing and letting them live as long a life as they can, um, and sort of the ethics behind raising animals and, and using them in a production system. A lot of them come for that reason. A lot of them come because they like their taste, <laughs> um, or they're looking for the health benefits of just raw milk. Um, and then they often will then transition into buying some of the meats, um, partly because I think dairy is a good entry point for people as well because it's cheaper, right? You can try out a liter of milk and spend a few euros on it, and you're not spending 20 euros on, a, on an organic chicken. Um, but what they find is that they, they then start to buy into, through our wonderful marketing, through the whole, to the whole system, the whole ethos of the food production, um, in that everything is connected. Do you know what I mean? And everything is mutually beneficial to each other in the operation, and that's what makes it work. And so they think, oh yeah, I will, I will buy a bit of that pork because it is hard to find you know, free-range organic pork as well. And so I'll spend, I'll choose to spend my dollars that way. Yeah. Um, some of them come knowing exactly what they want. Do you know what I mean? They organic in. Other people come in a bit more hesitantly, and I'm like, well, I think I'll try this out. But sometimes the price is sick, can be a bit of a sticker shock for people. And so, but once they, you know, once they get into it, um, then then you get a really loyal, loyal sort of customer that way, which is nice. I think as well the two things like you've mentioned twice and I think it's a really important point about your farm as well is um, you said this is your fifth season not your fifth year and you've mentioned seasonality a lot and I think when it comes to particularly when it comes to livestock like dairy and and our meats we do forget that there is a seasonality to these things in a kind of in the particularly in the system that you run you know where you're trying to balance each animal benefits the other, they have a role to play, they're all outdoors and graze, but the cost of that is the seasonality. And then, as you said, for people, once they, they dairy is a great entry point because it's a bit cheaper. And then once they get the ethos into it, they want to buy. And I wonder, is that because they're kind of beginning to see the true cost of food, if that makes sense? In the sense that, you know, cheap food, someone, something, somewhere always covers that cost. Whereas when you really get to know 
how your food is produced, perhaps you can understand prices, how it, how it's more expensive? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the health is, is definitely a big part of it. Um, I think taste is a big part as well, but, mm. but the health part and the, and the true cost of food, I mean, more and more we're seeing as well people like nutritionists people coming to us because their nutritionist has said to them you know you don't want to be consuming this other stuff um so i think there is a fundamental change happening mm -hmm. um for us it's it's a bit interesting that you know we we have a a, a lot of different sort of um ways in which we sell so we sell directly to local people and we sell through a market um, and then we sell through retailers and I like the local rounds and we know most of our local people, but I also I like the market as well because you get feedback. There's a feedback loop from the people who are consuming, which you don't necessarily get in retail as much. You can get from the retailer themselves, but you're not necessarily interacting with those customers. And so it's sometimes then hard to judge why they are buying things. Um, but the, the, the one at the market, the retail, or sorry, the, the market, the feedback loop that you get, um, a lot of people do find it makes a difference in how they feel. And, and again, I don't necessarily even know if that's physically all the time, but it's also mentally. Do you know what I mean? If they're buying into ethos and they're doing these things, they feel better about what they're consuming. Um, you know, whether it's actually making them feel better physically or not, you know, is their own thing. Um, but our consumers, it's interesting that the ones we directly interact with, um, a lot of them are not Irish. Um, it's, it's, yeah and and i mean a lot are eastern european yeah and they just seem to be a bit more that's that's seems to be a bit more of their value system that just is slightly more they don't mind spend that bit more in food they are one step closer to oh my grandma had you know it did this and did that and and me personally coming from the states i feel like ireland is even one step closer to that than we ever were in the states you know yeah. we were well removed from the land but um they're even more so you know and they want the, the products that that haven't been processed in any way shape or form be they meat or, or dairy um so it's interesting to judge it that way and see why they're coming you know they're coming because there's a, a like a cultural part of it as well mm -hmm. um so culture health taste all those things feed into feed into why people are starting to choose and i think i do think it is changing i think you're right um that that we're paying for it. you know we're paying for it through taxes and through the government and through subsidies to you know big farms and everything else um so people are seeing that if they can support the farmer there is a direct impact to that mm -hmm. um and not only not only do they not only are they supporting the farmer i was doing a bit of research recently we use a small local abattoir for all of our all of our animals to process all of our animals and he's a family who has kids you know what i mean there's very few those lads are going out of business as well um yeah. because there's no market there people raising animals on a small enough scale to keep the family sort of abattoir in business um and so there's a direct knock-on effect that goes down you know from just somebody producing their own food and, and then trying to distribute it a little bit to the community as well that's it it's all those like it's kind of you know it's an interesting point you said um as well about your customers and i've we've i've heard that from other farmers as well and i think it is because they're they're not as removed from their food production um, or removed from the land and how food is produced as we have become um, and how say, as you said yourself, America is. And I think, yeah, we're kind of beginning to reconnect because we're seeing the, we're seeing the kind of the end problems 
with the way we're producing our food and people are slowly kind of beginning to ask questions about their food. But I think that's a big thing that's also forgotten that when you do, as you said, like supporting you is also supporting another small business and that's an abattoir, you know, like that there's these knock on effects within your community. And it's a great way, food can be a great way to revive, I think, local communities and particularly in rural Ireland, I think food really has that potential to, to revive us both physically, revive our environment and our communities, I think. Maybe that's just me being really philosophical now. <laughs> and having visited Clondarrick Farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking like, you know, the, like all the farms we've been to, community is such a big point of it. Like whether that's a direct, a strong relationship with customers or being a part of a CSA or, you know, but community is, you, we never have a podcast without it being mentioned, I think, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's true which is really interesting food, food is such a communal a communal thing i mean mm-hmm. even historically that's how we bonded and socialized and gotten to the point where you know or we reached a point where people, all people wanted was cheap in there there was all the other value of the food was lost um mm-hmm. so trying to build so trying to build that back in um is a, is a challenging yeah, interesting part of it <laughs> it is challenging but it is farmers like yourself um, and other guys that we've spoken to that are really kind of at the forefront of this, like that are, are in more ways than one, you're not just producing food, but you are helping your environment and building your community. You're superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> trying. trying to be, working towards. <laughs> well, at least you're trying. <laughs> but I think there is like, there is a role model kind of situation there and and people who realize that what you're doing and all the the positive effect that that type of farming has actually buying as you said into that ethos and also supporting that and become role models themselves and as consumers then in their communities so so it's I'm very hopeful <laughs> when I when I hear about that and when I see that more and more people are producing in that way and people are actually positively reacting to it and buying into it so I think there's a cultural change happening. And I think there's I think there's a lot of scope within Ireland in a farming context for smaller scale when I sell small scale. I know that Ireland in general doesn't have massive, massive farms, right? But we're talking 28 acres. That's a very small animal agriculture farm. Most of those farms are, are a lot bigger. But I think there is a place for small scale animal agriculture within Ireland in that it doesn't necessarily exist. You know, there's there's just not many you know, small scale pig producers or small scale because you know there is some are some barriers to entry and it is hard to find for example your abattoir who's going to process for you and package for you and label for you and all of those things um but there's there is pretty the pretty open market when it comes to those things because most of the producers who are producing these things are big you know they're big and that they're specializing and so the sort of the small scale you know home study type of um type of model where things are interconnected and there's layers and it's very permaculture-esque um but it is still producing an abundance of food there's i think there's a lot of scope for those sort of systems you know to evolve in ireland um because lads are looking even even a bit larger scale you can you know you can start on a small a small manageable plot and and work your way up um but the 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 bigger lads who have diverse who have not diversified um, who are looking for other options? You know, there's. I think there's, there's a lot of scope there for people to, to take the model and sort of very scalable. You know, to use it. Yeah, I agree. 
And I think it's interesting, like I was at a, an event recently and there was, um, uh, my table was talking about small farmers like yourself. Um, and uh, they had just labeled, labeled us all as, they'd given us really long labels, but small farmers like yourself are that, you know, basically diverse systems on the farm. Um, but a comment towards the end of it from, uh, from someone in industry said, you know, this is all lovely and this is pretty, but these farmers are only feeding their local community, those farmers, and they pointed to the table that was talking about, you know, specialized, big intensive farms kind of going, but those guys feed the world. And I was like, but hold up, someone, we're all local to somewhere. So if every farmer is feeding their local community, then aren't we feeding the world? And it's just rolled eyes and walked away. But it is true, you know, there's this, there's this perception that small farms can't feed the world, but you can, if we're feeding a local community and everyone is local somewhere and a small farm is doing the same thing, then we're feeding the world. You're just not exporting it. <laughs> Exactly. And, and export seems to be, and anything within Ireland seems to be the, ult the ultimate goal, um, the only goal that, that people are working on. And I understand it is a small island nation and, you know, the, they want to have revenue coming into the country and that's fair enough. But, um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, how much baby formula do we need to send to China? Do you know, like, is that really the ultimate goal of just mass production at the cost of everything else? Yeah. You know, um, that's that, that's what I find is that is you're you're doing that you're you're sacrificing something in that process when you choose to not feed your local community and you choose to sort of reach for export the whole time. There has to be something that you're sacrificing there. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. If everyone focused a tiny bit more on on feeding their local community and not necessarily, you know, how much can we get out of the country, um, then uh, better off i mean we we're joking I was joking recently with some people like if our you know if we got cut off what are we what are we self-sufficient in, in ireland like mushrooms and, and barley like we go good with mushrooms and beer do you know i mean like but but yeah you know and of course we can you know <laughs> and all of these things as well um but you take the example of when we had the big massive snowstorm and nobody would go into their local farmer to get a liter of milk. They all ran to the store and like bought yeah. out the entire store of milk. And then it was like a, it was a showed how fragile the system is when you don't actually produce for your local community, at least a little bit. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Like we saw that with the beasts and these, you know, that it's a, it's a ridiculously efficient long supply chain, but the minute one chain within that link is broke, the whole thing collapses. And yeah, like it's, and then again, that's how it shows how far removed we've become from from the farm as as consumers. That when when there is that issue, as you said, we went straight to the supermarket. We all pushed through each other to get a liter of milk instead of going. God, I wonder does he run down there? <laughs> yeah, when we come back to that, to the second topic of, of, of this podcast is resilience and and we want to look at farm diversity through that lens especially mm -hmm. since we had those events and it didn't seem to be a topic in the media really afterwards you saw that oh maybe now the discussion would open up about how resilient are we but it didn't really and um, yeah I think mm -hmm. we want to highlight actually how small diverse farms can build that resilience can you tell us a bit more about the resilience on your farm 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose again, I, there's two there's two two ways I look at resilience, and one is just like from an environmental perspective, you know, environmental resiliency to weather things like droughts or storms or whatever they might be. If you have a variety of of different operations that are hopefully mutually beneficial and are benefiting the land, um, you're much better prepared when things come down the line to be able to weather weather the storm, whatever it may be. Um, and also on a small scale, you can adjust a lot quicker than you can on a larger scale. You know, you can scale up, scale down, or, or, or do what you need to um, to adjust to whatever the environment is, is throwing at you. Um, but then also from a, from a financial perspective, um, people to have operations that are bringing different things at different times and to be able to scale those is massive for, for um, financial resiliency as a, as a small farm. Um, Again, the people come to you for one thing, and then they often are then buying another. It's not just sort of a one way, you know, one one thing um, that they're coming for. And so, for us, we wouldn't actually. And if you chose any one of our individual operations and just said you can just do that, we wouldn't be able to farm the way that we are as full time farmers. Um, you. I mean, I suppose if you said, okay, you have to get rid of your cows and you're just going to, you know, you're just going to raise pigs. Um, well, fine. But then you, you also run into the, the, um, the, the hurdle of trying then to market all of those different things. It's a lot easier to market a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this because people want variety than it is to say, I have, you know, I've raised 600, you know, pigs this year who's going to buy all of that, you know, who's going to buy all of that meat. Um, so looking at the whole diet and the whole complex system, the way, the same way you're looking at the whole complex system when you're looking from the environmental side of it at nature, um, those feed into why, why, literally feed into why we can do what we can do. Um, and we couldn't, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't do it with any one specific thing without a, a lot more hardship than, than we already have. Um, also a lot more pressure on your environment as well when you specialize like that absolutely because you think i mean we'll take pigs for an example you think like we raise pigs and our food source for pigs is skin milk and buttermilk we literally have no inputs otherwise in pigs especially your certified organic pig feed that we would have to buy is heinously expensive um but if you ha didn't have that as a, a you know as part of your operation skin milk and the, and the buttermilk You'd have to you'd have to buy in some feed for those pigs, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you were then doing it on a very large scale, because that's the only operation you had, you'd have to buy in a heck of a lot. And so your input costs are going up. And again, you're sacrificing something along the way. Um, and so not only are you trying to find a market for that then, but your price point has to be a lot higher as well. Um, and so then it's even harder to find your market. So there are a lot of knock-on effects. Yeah, and I don't the um, the, you know, the, we've gone down the sort of the conventional route and people don't see the other stuff as an option, but I wouldn't see any other option for us. You know what I mean? Like they, there just wouldn't be, you know, any, any other opportunity to do just one thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Like, as I, you know, we were talking about, um, it's Kate from Ungarn Glass who said there is uh, resilience and diversity. And I think if there's anything in this podcast that we want to get across, and that is the main thing, that there is such resilience and diversity. And whether, as you said, that's from a financial point of view as a farmer or 
as a customer that you know when you are tapping into farms like yourself and supporting farmers like you then they are supporting farms that are working in harmony with nature as you said yourself like you know so it makes it makes yeah, sense. And if you look at natural systems and you know something comes through and wipes out one you know not completely but knocks back one species or one insect and something comes up to take its place like you can there there's a balance there there's a fine balance in nature where do you know what i mean everything is, is working together um and by having a variety of different operations even if they're they're sort of contrived you know farming and agriculture really isn't a natural model in general um but if you're trying to mimic those complex systems a little more you can you know something something knocks back one of your production for the year well that's okay you can focus your energy over here a little bit more and come back to that again um you're not solely dependent on any one thing um and the system the system doesn't fall apart if there are enough facets to it essentially um but if you just have some a linear system and like you said before with the with one link gone um if you just have a linear system then then it's broken it's completely broken mm -hmm. whereas if you have a multifaceted system you have so much more flexibility and, and so much more ability in general to to be resilient mm -hmm. yeah i think so i think in the context of climate change and biodiversity you know this is this is where there's potential i think for farming to perhaps you know like often in climate change debates and even in biodiversity farming we we it doesn't come out on top, um, particularly in the media. And I think that's because of our modern food system and specialization of things. But, you know, in the context of climate change and biodiversity, diverse farms really have such an important role to play, both in providing food for communities, but also in kind of aiding biodiversity, building biodiversity and being resilient, adaptive. And in some cases, as you see now with, um, with soils and, and livestock, in some cases, mitigate certain things in climate change and I think these are the messages that we need to get across that there is potential there to do things different we have farmers like yourself already doing it we just need to get your voices out there <laughs> <laughs> which you guys are helping to do um, yeah and I think when you break it down and you start to look at like diversity on every level the more diverse your system is above ground and the, you know and and that's not just animals you know that's plant species and that's trees and that's shrubs and that's bushes then the more diverse it's going to be below ground you know everything complements each other um where you know and 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 that's the system that we absolutely need the complexity of it um for for ourselves for the climate for the world um at large Absolutely. I, I just read that there's a new study that, I mean, we knew it already that the microbes in the, in the soil are, you know, are essential for, for all types of processes, but it, it becomes clear and clear that to, to store carbon in the soil, they are essential. And so we need that diversity of, of microbes in the soil. So yes, <laughs> diversity above and below ground. I love that. We have to get a t-shirt made since diversity rocks initially. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, it's the key. It's the key to everything. The next farm on our list was Klondarik Farm, and we were really blown away by the passion that is behind the idea of building a community farm there. What happened here yesterday? So, just to give us an idea of, of Klondarik. So we had our summer solstice. Summer solstice <laughs> celebration, yeah. Um, 
I guess we, we, we decided to um, celebrate um, all the ancient um, festivals that were all based around nature. Um, and, uh, you know, the very obvious reason for that is that it's a really good way of um, everybody grounding and connecting to what there is to celebrate about nature, which is a lot. So whether it's, it's kind of, a, it's nothing to do with religion or anything like that, though you are using that, those old um, pre-Christian times um, and even early Christian times because they still used all of those celebrations in early Christian times as a sort of a platform, but um, it's not about that at all, you know. It's about, um, it's about um, bringing people together to, to just kind of be in awareness together um, about nature, you know. And uh, just we, it was very simple. We just said, you know, we're having a, um, a, a small, intimate um, affair for people who are already connected, yeah. you know, and bring a couple of friends if you want. And we didn't promise the world. We just, as I said, <laughs> promised fire, fire, food, and song, you know. <laughs> and all, and they all came, and it was, and you know, we all we did really was decorate the place and light the fire, but. It was the people themselves that made it, you know. I think that's a really important part, <clears throat> that people come away feeling that they were very much part of it themselves, and they contributed, and they made the night. They were part of making that night a really special night. Totally. That's what makes the difference, yeah. isn't it? That's what community you know? is. It's <clears throat> and, of course, they're all asking when's the next one already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is only... Over a month away. I, I thought we had till the end of August. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it is only first of August. Yeah. Yeah. So um, and you know, um, it really makes people want to be to be part of this. For them to have felt so so connected, so ha have such a nice experience together socially, um, it makes them want to contribute in other ways. You know, to be here for other things, like the planting and the growing and that kind of thing, you know. It's just a matter of organising and... Creating a space. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have all of the people, I mean, we have all the people, you know, but it's to bring all of those people together in an organised, structured way, that's the next step, mm -hmm. you know. So... John, you mentioned, you both mentioned that there's a lot of people like this who want to connect, but they don't have the space, and you've created the space. And I think what's really interesting about this space is the story of your farm, your 230 acre farm. We started in a diverse scenario and this kind of had a long journey back to, well, to a place of today. Can you tell us how you kind of came to that? Yeah, well, I suppose, um, yeah, I, I took over the farm. I suppose my father died in 1999 and the farm would have been kind of traditional of this area. It had um, 35 milking cows, 100 sheep, there was cereals, uh, malt and barley, sugar beet, and we finished our own cattle and bought in some other beef cattle as well. Um, and yeah, my father would have always said he was a jack of all trades and a master of none. <laughs> um, and so I suppose there was a, that was a busy life, I suppose that was typical. Everyone, you know, if they had a quiet time of year, you came up with an enterprise to, to fill to that time. Yeah. That, yes. And I suppose when I took over, the first thing the sheep were got rid of, and gradually, I suppose, over time, um, I, I started to specialise, and specialised in dairy farming. Um, 
and yeah, I suppose milk quotas were starting to free up, and so I expanded up to 160 cows and was planning on milking 200 cows when I changed course <laughs> or had a, a an awakening. Maybe I don't know what way you would describe it, but anyway, I started questioning everything I was doing, um, and really quickly, I suppose, got to a point where I couldn't stay doing what I was doing, um, and so I signed up to the organic scheme and became an organic farmer but I always knew it, as well as that I had to reconnect I suppose with with customers and people and um, with people yes mm. and that was I suppose something that I struggled with all along because I realized the advantages of specialization um, and how it you know from a labor point of view it brings about huge efficiency and to go back I knew I couldn't go back to what my father was doing um, you know the world had changed everyone you know, likes to have time off and, you know, like I need to have more time with my family than what he would have, you know, even though being a farmer, you're always around your family, but, you know, you need to be able to to take time away from the farm too. Um, So I suppose, and to do so in a sustainable way as well. So I know how we manage labour efficiency. Often, you know, it's more technology or all of these things, which often come at obviously a big financial cost, but often also an environmental cost, like mm-hmm. more electricity, more diesel, more whatever. And so it really brings to the point where you actually need people or community to um, to allow, I suppose, this diversity of enterprises to come back. Um, and yeah, so connect with people and involve them, I suppose. is And so that's kind of the point where we're at now. So scratching our head as to mm-hmm. how to develop that further. So what exactly is happening on the farm now? So you are going down the, you know, expanding route, dairy, moving yep. up the numbers, and now what's the scenario today? Yeah, so I'm still milking 60 cows, mm-hmm. um, and there's obviously beef animals from that as well. Um, so there's uh, spring oats on the farm as well. There's uh, a few little pigs, tree pigs there, um, and one just after farrowing. Heard them in the background yeah. there. <laughs> and there's there's hens on yeah. the farm, but I suppose most of them aren't really commercial um, enterprises. You could say the spring oats and the and the dairy cows are, and the beef is commercial, I suppose. But um, I don't necessarily have a huge interest in developing lots of different enterprises to feed a commodity system mm. that think is just largely destructive anyway so um, I'm happy t- for these enterprises to develop um, in response to a local community I suppose I think the big problem we're facing a lot of these things were we're always trying to figure out how we can sustainably feed the world mm. and you can't sustainably feed mm-hmm. the world yeah. you have to break it th- like it's just overwhelming you just doesn't work or you can't sustainably feed Ireland but we can sustainably feed it we can look at our local community and try and sustainably feed them and if we start at that bottom, build all them little brick props together, then we can actually sustainably feed the world. But mm-hmm. we can't. We can't look at it from that way. And I suppose that's what it's. It's connecting to a community and actually looking at what they want and responding to what they want, involving them in, you know, bringing back that connection with their food. And so it's not actually a commodity anymore. It's now food that has a value again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I suppose we're. It's all about what we need to what needs to happen now. This kind of farming enterprise is very much the way forward on a climate front, biodiversity front, and a community social front. And these are three elements, yep. and economic as well. I'm sure. Completely, yeah. You yep. know, and these are these are the elements of sustainability. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so then, how did you two meet? 
Besides last night, have great crack. So I, I was, I'm a homeschooler, and um, um, sure, I'm always coming up with all sorts of harebrained ideas. Um, but one of the things was, I, I suppose, the reason I took my kids out of school. I, I didn't, one didn't go to school, and then my son took him out when he was seven. Um, was because I was very frustrated by the lack of um, education in things that I consider to be really, really important um, mm. for kids, like everything we've just been talking about, you know, um, taking care of the planet. Um, I, I really feel like school is still very much about um, um, human first, you know, human... Per, um, um, achievement above all else, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and so and then there's and then there are some they are bringing in um, people, some wonderful people through some of the schemes to do some work with, you know, on the environment. And of course, there's lots of people putting in lots of good work in there. But in the overall system, it's just piecemeal as far as I see it, you know. And there's a few other reasons, personal reasons for that, but that would would have been one of the big reasons for me, you know. Um, so, so then I, do, I, I, I would have been working in a way on, you know, um, the kids' education at home being about, you know, being conscious of their role while, you know, on the planet while they're here, how they impact, you know. And, um, and then it went from there to wanting to do it um, in, in community again with other people because, you know, uh, no man is an island and all yeah. of that. I don't actually think any of these things can be done in isolation. It's just not possible, you know. Um, no. People need each other, mm -hmm. and and that's a fact. And what you were saying earlier about community, I, I think people have really lost sight of how just how important community is, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, because when excuse the language when the shit hits the fan, you know, <laughs> you need people around mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and that would have been something that would be very important for me for the kids. And then, you know, so I reached out to um, other homeschoolers first about, you know, coming together and doing this kind of um, education with the kids, you know, with a focus on their, their place on the planet and in a, in a sort of an interdependent um, world. Um, and then kind of the Earth School concept was born. And, um, and um, there was... A, Lots of people whose kids are in mainstream really wanted to be part of it as well. So obviously, mm -hmm. you, we, we're all about not excluding anybody. So mm -hmm. it's just a, a lovely thing that's open to anybody. And then John's wife, I think, wasn't it Katie that saw um, it on Facebook and um, knowing how mad John is? <laughs> you know, John will want to know about this. So um, it, essentially, any of the... Um, the um, the vision, what, what's the word I'm looking for, the um, aims and objectives I would have had were like almost exactly what he had in mind for the farm. Mm -hmm. So um, we just got, and he said he had space here and, um, and you know, that was the start of that. So um, we're hoping to, um, the plan was to go into this shed here, it turns out to be a bit small, we're turning it into a kitchen now. But there's other plans for here, you know, lovely, big, big plans. Um, and then Tobias as well, who's not here today. Um, how did you meet Oh, you already knew Tobias from the Biodynamic? Yes, uh, through the Biodynamic mm -hmm. Association, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Tobias is also helping us out. So I suppose he 
obviously through biodynamics where there's a deep connection with um, um, and a very holistic I suppose looking understanding of nature and working in that way and and so he has a huge love of animals and all of farming and so he's been a huge help as well in, in wisdom, getting us yeah. to this point mm. yes and a lot of wisdom as well yeah. um, so I suppose yeah the he's the godfather we're all <laughs> sh sharing a very common common goal I suppose which is uniteness yeah I think yeah. you can't do these things without children. I mean, mm. you know, um, so, I mean, I, I've said it to John a couple of times, really, all I want to do with the Earth School um, project is to do almost exactly what John wants to do with adults, with children, mm. you know. It's just, uh, you know, obviously it's a, in a much different, uh, more child-friendly way, but we're just co copying the larger uh, Clendaric project, you know, and and you know the mixed ages is really nice as well because I love the idea of bringing in you know some people from active retirement groups and stuff like that because I think that's another thing that's really missing from now is you know um, the wisdom of elders and you know having young people exposed to you know the wisdom of older people that kind of thing I think that would be a really lovely thing to have going on here you know. Yeah. And the kids, sure, as soon as they come out here, they just come alive, you know. Like my little guy, same as, as lots of kids his age, he's constantly after the screen, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's, all, it's a battle all the time at home. Um, and then, you know, when you say, right, we're going out to the farm or we're going wherever, to the mountains or to the woods, he'll kind of whinge a little bit about it. But as soon as he's out there, he's gone. Like, yeah. Do you know, yeah. as soon as he's hit the elements, that's it for them. Know. and they love it you know and they all all the kids love being here yeah. and can you tell us a bit more how the community can get involved here how you're going to accommodate them here on, on the farm yep so the, these are that's maybe the million dollar question we're yeah. still we're still engaging <laughs> and trying to figure out that i suppose obviously um the first thing um i suppose it needs a kind of a core group mm. um and so you, you could say annette tobias and, and myself are part of that at the minute but we probably need a bigger core group to, to drive some of the like these other enterprises like the community garden to um to give that energy it, it could ideally need someone um you know the same like i've dairy cows and there's opportunities to process that milk into butter or cheese or kefirs or whatever so many different things so like that's that's again i like you know i could you almost feel this pressure when you go organic they have to go and, and process all your cheese or process your milk into cheese and all of these things but like you know i don't really have a natural interest in making cheese mm -hmm. and i think that would be a lot better served by someone who does mm -hmm. um, yeah. and i suppose look ideally what we we would want to really try and fully fully nourish a community with the full broad range of, of foods that are required like um and that can be done like you know it has been done for thousands of years yeah. before we had all um, imports and different things and we can even do it with much more mindfully than we did in the past like um and so i, I suppose anyone who um has a who has a calling to be involved in a project like this well, they can definitely contact us and um if they would uh like to be involved we're definitely uh, open to all suggestions um and then i suppose there's kind of a second kind of um a second group you could say that are involved who are maybe still heavily cut up in their own lives and they have a more limited time but then they mm -hmm. can also engage like through participating in social events or you know maybe planting days um there's so many different ways i suppose that were you know we had a, a tree planting day earlier on this year um when we we're planting the home garden um and you know that was really nice too i think there's 
something very special about planting a tree mm-hmm. um, yeah. because you know it really like a, you're a part you've got a connection to that place and seeing how that tree develops yes. and you know especially when it's a tree that it's not been planted with the intention of being ever cut down like mm. it's um it's uh, and then you have your your wild foods and yep hedgerows you know? and yeah so yeah. then permaculture i suppose is again i suppose really i suppose a lot of what's happening you know they could say how we're how we're reacting to the problems in the world so far i suppose there's the first thing you could say we're trying to actually um use result or use inputs more efficiently mm. um so like you know you could see conventional farmers are trying to improve nitrogen use or different things like that um and then there's substitution i suppose and we're looking at that like how what can we substitute plastic for or what can we substitute nitrogen fertilizer for or do, you know we can maybe there's things that are slightly better um but i think ultimately we're in such a problem now we, we need a complete redesign of of the system of our food system of our economy of, of so many things i think and that's what permaculture is really trying to do um but permaculture is not something that you can just decide today it, it takes time it takes years to build up um and you know the economic system at the moment doesn't really facilitate that happening but <laughs> there's no point in waiting for 20 years time mm. when we say oh, we need to actually have this now we need to start now i suppose yeah. so it's trying to involve a community in facilitating that transition like from a like a um, as much as this landscape might have diversity and stuff it's still hugely reduced from what mm. it could be and i suppose we have to see that like it's been reduced before even chemical farming came along it's mm. been reduced for the last thousand years like mm. we had this kind of reductive mindset is not didn't come with oil it has been here all along it's just I suppose cheap energy has facilitated us speeding up that process mm. and where now we understand actually you know we're destroying the natural world that we're a part of we're actually destroying ourselves or a part of ourselves yeah. and so I think that's the huge new realization that has happened in the last you know some people might have had it a hundred years ago but it's becoming a kind of a, 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 a much more widely mainstream. yeah mainstream um, yes. uh, just a new consciousness that's developing mm. i suppose because you have the internet to kind of thank for that little yeah bit, so know, it has facilitated much as we can you know be give out about the internet it has a huge role in that's that that does positives yeah. Yeah, yeah i think so yeah for kind of you know you could have something here fantastic at a local base yeah but through the internet you can be an inspiration yeah. for another space yeah yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. well we can use technology in any way to empower us or to disempower us and exactly. i know a huge amount of technology disempowers us and the mm. internet can do that too exactly um but we can be mindful and wise how we use it the same with oil the mm. same with you yeah. know it, it's not going to disappear like that yeah. um, and we can make use of it in, yeah. the, in the meantime to as we try and develop systems where maybe we're not so dependent on it um comes down to ba- what you said, balance. Balance. It's all balance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, nature is in balance, you know. Yeah. I think that's the most amazing thing about this farm is that it's it's a working farm. You've created a space to bring community together, but the central point to all of it is food and nature, mm-hmm. and the interconnectedness and the interdependent between you as a farmer to your community, the community to this farm, space, food, nature. It's really is one of yeah. it's a fantastic yeah. example of that of a real reconnection you know sometimes some of us we go walk in the forest and we're kind of going yeah I reconnect <laughs> no this is really 
I know is that our Wendell Berry said every meal is an agricultural act. Yes. I suppose, and what has happened over the last hundred years, it's not farmers; it's been farmers and consumers exactly. holding hands as we walk this path. And yeah. we're not go- farmers aren't going to lead us back out of this. We need the we need to be united again with 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 the general public. You know, the people yeah. who who have become disconnected from food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. Has to we be can only start this together. Exactly. Yeah, the way, and we have to be together. Mm. You know, too often in the debates, it's, it's polarized, and farmers need to fix things. But actually, through what we choose to eat, and also through oh, what we yeah. choose to get involved in, yeah. you know, we can support farms like yourself, John, and therefore support our own ourselves and our community. Yeah. You know, this you know this, I, I, it makes me sad when I hear people saying humans are a virus on the earth and this kind of thing because. Mm. I think, you know, you can't go anywhere good with that kind of talk. Yeah. And I think it would be easy to fall into thinking like that because we've done so much damage. Um, I prefer to see it as um, humans, have, we, we've forgotten, we've gotten so caught up in our head um, that we've forgotten what our role is, but we're part of nature just as much as the worm in the soil. Mm. And we have a role to play. And we just have to, to try and remember what that role is. and. And I think that we, you know, we're we know by now we're very powerful uh, creatures um, because of our, I suppose, our ability to be conscious of ourselves, and um, we can we can do something as much as we were able to do something so destructive. We can equally we equally have the power to do something uh, really really beautiful, you know. Instead, um, I, I think there's you just. I mean, I could very easily go, oh, Jesus, humans. I, uh, and I, I often do sometimes, you know. <laughs> but um, it's not true. We're part of, We're here. Just the same as every, all the other creatures are. We're here. We've just forgotten stuff, you know. That's it. And yeah. it's just, mm. you know, like what you've done here, John, is pretty amazing yeah. in the sense that you've created a space to allow people to remember that. Yeah. What we've done, definitely, it's uh, because, there like, yeah, this um, is, again, like, I know, at the, you could say a year ago before I met Annette, like, you know, the ideas might be floating in my head, but to have the bravery to actually take a first step mm-hmm. was, like, very overwhelming. And so that's why, like, when I seen what Annette, Annette actually did have, she was probably braver than what I would have been. I just have a bigger mouth to uh, Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's where, you know, exactly. So we need, like, there's no one person can, can, can you know, we can be much more complete by working together, I suppose. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're at a point that's, like, yeah, Annette, Annette said, what is, we can be constructive equally as much as we yeah. can be destructive, I suppose. And if we create a space where we can be constructive, like, we can essentially really throw the kitchen sink at the problems we're facing and I think we can make massive progress yeah. if we if we do and I think we'll have to do that I think it's um, I think there's a desire to do that um, yeah. and I mean if, if, if to do it now before it becomes um, you forced. know hmm? forced yeah like you know before we get to the point where well we already believe we don't have any other choice mm. we're already there but to the point where you, it becomes desperate. I think it's important for all of these kind of spaces to, um, and I think lots of people are conscious of that, to um, kind of be doing this ahead of all of that, you know. Um, but, you know, John was saying about having other people. I don't think even, you know, um, it's great to be full of ideas, but they're no good without lots of other people there with you, you know. And when people like people like last night kept come around, should you come away floating, you know? 
and <laughs> just full of, you know, dreams and visions and, you know, it's just keeping that, uh, keeping that maintained, I think. Yeah, momentum is yeah. what's important. Yeah. It's a new element to farming life, isn't it? Completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A diversification in a very different way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's fabulous. But there's resilience in it. Yeah. Fantastic resilience. Yeah. Patience is a big one, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I love that. Um, I know Vandana Shiva used an expert monoculture mm-hmm. of the mind, like, yeah. um, and how, like, we have, again, it's our reductive mindset. Like, we look at, you know, the first question someone might ask about if you're farming is, you know, how many cows are you milking? Yeah. Or what's your milk yield? Mm-hmm. Or all of these things. And we, it's, we're essentially reducing it down to a few little parameters um, where, like, actually, it's, you know, you can't even measure this because there's so many things to no. measure that you'll just trip yourself up trying to measure everything so it's you just I think being holistic is um, it's, you know it's, it's, it's just it comes it's from the heart I suppose yeah because yeah. You, you can't you, you can't redu- you're, you can't scientifically measure every component without reducing something else I suppose um, or something that we're not even aware of exactly. connections that are real you can't measure no yeah. It's such a brave thing, though, for a farmer to do, isn't it? Isn't it? I, and this is a... And don't, don't I'm in awe. I'm he doesn't like it. He blow him off, you know. But, I mean, like, if you can... You know, I have to try and put myself, because I'm not a farmer, um, in the position of a farmer with, you know, 200 acres making a move like this. That's a really brave step to make, yeah. do you know? I don't know, because, like, if you still look at what's like happening in a way like I suppose the, the current system is falling apart we can see it it had like if you look at the amount of farmers even since the 1930s that mm-hmm. have disappeared and where that was like something taken for granted um, uh, like at that you know that was just you know you have to get bigger or get out like and I suppose I remember when I bef- at the start of I suppose before the dairy expansion I remember being at a Chagas Glanvia meeting, meeting about, and where it was essentially said you know if, you're, if you can't milk 100 cows in the future you don't really have a future in dairy. And like, and I remember so many farmers came away from that meeting so disillusioned. Yeah. Um, I, at the time, I was young, and I didn't actually really care because I knew I could milk 100 cows. Yeah. And for me, this was just an opportunity to expand. And, you know, I was caught up in that kind of um, the excitement of mm-hmm. expansion, I suppose. And there is, you know, building anything can be exciting, I suppose. Like, building a community can be exciting yeah, as well. Sure. Um, but that mindset was, was taken for granted. And we're at this point now where, you know, we've seen it with the pig and poultry industries now where they're largely, I suppose, corporatized or owned by feed companies or Glanvia or certain co-ops or, you know, and that, and, you know, or forestry, for instance, you know, it's largely has been corporatized as well. And so I suppose agriculture is at that point now, the big farms are all being either put into forestry to be corporatized or like big dairy farms are going to become vulnerable to being corporatized as well because the bills get so big the, like everything, a bad year comes and we're in a boom bust commodity market mm-hmm. so bad years will come and they'll combine with bad weather and it just gets too big I suppose for a, for the family farm to, to actually um, to, deal with. to deal with anymore so it's kind of like the next step of that scale um, that just continues increasing in scale and I think that's a, it's a dangerous step because when you take, disconnect the family farm from the land and put it into a corporation or into like that it loses that heart you know you often say corporations are like psychopaths like you know they're not they don't really have yeah. heart. they don't there's no good or bad it's yeah. make profit um, exactly. uh, whatever way you they do have a role and to play and they play it exactly yeah, exactly and that's it where you can't really treat nature like that you couldn't treat your children yeah. like that you couldn't you know and if you do it comes at a cost i suppose and uh so i think it's not really that brave a thing to do it's something 
like you 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 hear far- farmers are scratching their heads all around like beef farmers are like um you know they haven't been making money for a very long time yeah. tillage farmers the yeah. same it's either get into dairy and it's kind of the the last little resort of the conventional mainstream approaches to do it like and that's you know probably a potentially a ticking time bomb in itself yeah. um and what John would like is for what he sets up here to be repeatable. That he has he has said that several times for other is. farmers. Yeah. yeah. I think you're too modest, John. I think so too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What you what you are doing here is repeatable at any scale. Like I'm thinking even for us at you know, below the average size farm and this is something that we could do. And it's a great way to reconnect with your community, you know, because at the end of the day you're in this to feed your community. Yeah. yeah. And what better way to do that than to create an open space for them? I think maybe what you were saying is that, so while we're looking at you saying, um, you know, it's a brave thing because, you know, you can see that it would be a scary thing for other farmers to think about doing, but you're saying that it just, it's, it's a logical step for to make considering the times we're in, right? Yeah, you yeah. look, uh, stepping outside your comfort zone is yeah. always a hard thing to do, obviously, and this is what, like, you know, I way outside my comfort zone I'd be <laughs> happier to curl up and or you know being a farmer you can and, and I'm one who I'm very happy working on my own and milking cows or planting trees doing my own little thing I think yeah. I could be quite happy doing it but I suppose if you believe that was enough then maybe yeah, that's what I would stay doing but um, when you really I think believe that things have to change and mm-hmm. if you don't change it will be kind of uh, you know forced upon us in, in a certain way um then I suppose that that's the drive, I suppose, to change. Yeah. Um, and the benefits just outweigh the... the yeah, I, and that's it. I think the, the, the door sides. they can open, you know, it, mm. I suppose once you step outside your comfort zone, it's always, you know, you can grow, I suppose. It's, um, and it does get uncomfortable, right? It, look, definitely, yeah. It's, oh, no, uh, it's totally easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in staying in the box <laughs> and, and not changing as well, well, you'll actually be dragged into, you know, like... You'll be forced the drought last year, for instance, is a perfect example. Like yep. you know, like I know if I was in the system I was in, I like last year would have been an extremely uncomfortable year for me. Yeah. You know, I would have probably been, you know, this area would would have been badly affected. But mm-hmm. because my stocking rate, because diverse wards, you know, it was largely not really affected by the drought. Um, so I suppose that's that's you know you're, you're, we're going to be taken into our out of our comfort zone, whether we like it or not. I think. Um, and you know you can see even all the force changes that you know with carbon taxes or all of this um you know like we read it there's a an understanding at government level that agriculture needs to change mm-hmm. how it changes there might be a lot of different opinions but change is kind of inevitable i suppose anyway yeah, yeah. perfect yeah thank you very much <laughs> That's it for now, folks. Thanks a million for listening. To those of you who produce food, why not join the Fair Food Movement? Get involved, get in touch, join us. And if you're into Fair Food, then become a supporting member or check out our Patreon page to help us create more content like this. Until next time, eat well, choose fair.